This episode of Voices in AI is brought to you by Austin-based design consultancy Argo Design that gave us visions of the future like the Ambulance Drone, Wire One, the Echo Fresh Fridge, and Amazon Bin. Argo is shaping and designing for the new computing paradigm being ushered in by artificial intelligence. Learn more about Argo at argodesign.com. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Oren Etzioni. He's a professor of computer science who founded and ran University of Washington's Turing Center. And since 2013, he's been the CEO of the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. The Institute investigates problems in data mining, natural language processing, and the semantic web. And if that weren't enough to keep a person busy, he's also a venture partner at the Madrona Venture Group. Business Insider called him, quote, the most successful entrepreneur you've never heard of. Welcome to the show, Oren. Uh, thank you, and thanks for the kind introduction. I think the uh, key emphasis there would be on you've never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I've, I've heard of you, and I've followed your work, and, uh, and the Allen Institutes as well. And let's, let's start, if that's okay, let's start there. You're doing some fascinating things. So if you would just start off by telling us a bit about the Allen Institute, and then uh, I would love to go through the four projects that you feature prominently on the website and just talk about each one. They're all really interesting. Well, thanks. Uh, I, I'd love to. Um, the Allen Institute for AI is really um, Paul Allen's brainchild. He's had a passion uh, for AI for, for decades, and um, he's founded a series of institutes, scientific institutes in Seattle. We're modeled after the Allen Institute of Brain Science, which has been very successful running since uh, 2003. We were founded, I got started 2013, we were launched as a nonprofit January 1st, uh, 2014, and um, it's um, uh, a, a great honor to serve as CEO. Our mission is AI for the common good. And as you mentioned, we have uh, four projects uh, that I'm, uh, I'm really excited about. Our first project is uh, the Aristo project. And that's about building a computer program that's able to answer science questions of the sort that we would ask a fourth grader, and now we're also working with eighth grade science. And people sometimes ask me, well, gosh, you know, why do you want to do that? Are you trying to put 10-year-olds uh, out of work? Uh, and the answer is, uh, of, of course not. We really want to use that um, uh, test, uh, science test questions, as a benchmark for how well are we doing in intelligence, right? We see uh, tremendous success um, in uh, computer programs like AlphaGo uh, beating the world champion in Go. And we say, well, how does that translate uh, to language and particularly to understanding language and understanding diagrams and understanding science? And one way to answer that question is to uh, do kind of a, a level playing field with, well, let's ask machines and people the, the same questions. And so we've started with these scientists and we can see that in fact, uh, people do much better. It turns out, uh, paradoxically, the things that are relatively easy for people are really quite hard for machines. And things that are hard for people, like playing Go at uh, world championship level, those are actually uh, relatively easy for, for the machine. So hold, hold on to there, man. I want to I 
take a, a moment and really, um, really uh, dissect this. So I've noticed that, uh, I, you know, I have my standard question that anytime there's a candidate uh, chatbot that, you know, can make a go at the Turing test, uh, I, I start with the same question and none of them have ever answered it correctly. And it's, it's a question a four-year-old can answer, which is, uh, which is bigger, bigger, a nickel or the sun. So why is that a hard problem? Would, is what you're doing going, would it be able to answer that? And, and why would you start with a fourth grader instead of a four-year, like really go back to the most basic, basic question? So the first part of that is, um, is what you're doing going to, would, would it be able to answer that question? Um, so <clears throat> certainly our goal is to give it the uh, background knowledge and uh, understanding ability to be able to answer those types of questions that combine both uh, basic knowledge, basic reasoning, and enough understanding of language to know that when you say a nickel, you're not referring to the metal, but you're referring to a particular coin with a particular... Uh, you know, size uh, and so on. And uh, the reason that's so hard for the machine is that it's part of what's called uh, common sense knowledge, right? Of course, the machine, if you programmed it, could answer that particular question, but that's a stand-in for literally billions of other questions that you could ask about relative sizes, about uh, animal behavior, about the properties of paper versus feathers versus furniture, there's really a seemingly infinite or certainly very, very large number of basic questions that people uh, that, you know, certainly eight-year-olds can answer or four-year-olds, but that uh, machines uh, struggle with. And they struggle with it because, right, what's their basis for answering the question? How would they acquire all that knowledge? Um, now, to say, well, gosh, wh why don't we build a, um, a four-year-old or maybe even a one-year-old, uh, I've actually thought about that. So at the university, we investigated for a summer trying to follow the developmental ladder, saying let's start with a six-month-old and a one-year-old, et cetera, et cetera. And my interest is in particular in language. So I said, well, gosh, surely we can build something that can say, you know, Dada uh, or Mama, right? and then work our way from there. And what we found is that even at a very young child, their ability to process language and understand the world around them is so um, involved with their body, with their gaze, with their understanding of uh, people's facial expressions, that um, the, the net effect was that um, we could not build a, a one-year-old. So in a funny way, once you're getting to the level of a fourth grader who's reading and answering you know, multiple choice uh, science questions, it gets easier and it gets more focused on language and semantics and less on <clears throat> having a body, being able to crawl, which of course are, are, are challenging uh, robotics problems. So, so we chose to start um, higher up uh, in the ladder and it was kind of a Goldilocks thing, right? It was. Uh, more language focused and in a funny way easier than doing a one-year-old or a four-year-old, uh, four and at the same time, not as hard as, say, uh, college-level biology questions or AP questions, which involve very complicated language and reasoning. So is your thinking that by 
talking about school science examinations in particular, that you have a really, really narrow vocabulary that you have to kind of master, really narrow set of, of objects you kind of have to understand the property of. Is that the idea that it's like, like AI does well at games because they're constrained worlds with, with fixed rules. Are you trying to build that? Um, that's uh, uh, an, an analog to that? Um, it, it, is, it is an analog, right, in the sense that uh, AI has done well with having narrow tasks and, uh, you know, limited domains. At the same time, uh, it's probably not the word really. So from my point of view, uh, there are, you know, if you look, and this is something that we've learned as we looked at the tremendous variety in these questions, and not just variety of ways of saying things, but also um, variety because these tests often require you to take something that you can have an understanding of, like gravity or photosynthesis, but then apply it to a particular situation. What happens if we take a plant and move it nearer to the window? So that combination means that um, the combination of basic scientific knowledge but then application to a real-world situation means that it's really quite varied, and uh, it's really a much harder AI problem to answer fourth grade science questions than it is to uh, to solve Go. So, I I I completely uh, get that, and and so I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to sound like I'm changing the topic, but it, it is germane. So, do you believe that we're on a path to building an AGI, a general intelligence, and and is this in fact? It's like what, you're going to learn things doing this that. All we kind of will need to do maybe is scale them up more and more, faster, faster, better, better, and you'll have an AGI? Like, a, is this on that trajectory or is an AGI just something completely unrelated to what you're trying to do here? Um, that's a very, very key question. And I would say that we are not on a path to building an AGI in the sense that um, if you build Aristo and then you scale it to you know, 12th grade and more complex vocabulary and more complex reasoning, and hey, if we just keep scaling this uh, further, we'll end up with, with uh, artificial general intelligence, with an AGI. I don't think uh, that's the case. I think there are many other problems that we have to solve, and uh, this is uh, a part of a very complex picture, and a, uh, if, if it's a path, it's a very uh, meandering one. But, but really the point is that the word research, which is obviously what we're doing here, uh, has the word search in it. And that means that we're iterating, we're going here, we're going there, we're looking, you know, think about, oh, where did I put my keys, right? How many times do you retrace your steps and open that drawer and say, oh, but I forgot to look under the socks, or I forgot to look under the bed. It's, it's this very complex, uncertain process. It's quite the opposite of, oh, I'm going on the path, uh, you know, the goal is clear, and I just have to go uphill for five miles and I'll get there. I've got a, a, a book on AI coming out um, towards the end of this year, and in it I talk about um, the Turing test, and I talk about like the hardest question I could think of uh, to ask a computer so that uh, I could, you know, I could detect if it's a computer or a person. And, and here's a variant of what I came up with, which is um, Dr. Smith is eating at his favorite restaurant that he eats at frequently. He gets a call, an emergency call, and he... Uh, runs out without paying his bill. 
are the owners likely to prosecute? And so if you think about that, wow, you got to know he's a doctor. That call he got is probably a medical emergency. You have to infer that he eats there a lot, that they know who he is. They might even know he's a doctor. Are they going to prosecute? You know, so it's a gazillion kind of social things that you have to know in order to answer that question. Now, one is, is that is that also on the same trajectory of solving 12th grade science problems? Or, or is that question that I posed, would that require an AGI to answer? Well, w one of the things that we've learned is that um, whenever you define a task, let's say answering kind of story types of questions that involve uh, social nuance and maybe would involve uh, ethical and practical considerations. That is on the trajectory of our research, that you can imagine Aristo over time uh, uh, being challenged by these more nuanced questions. But um, again, uh, we've gotten so good at identifying those tasks, building training sets, building models, and then answering those questions. And that program might get good at answering those questions, but still have a hard time crossing the street, still have a hard time uh, you know, reading a poem or telling a joke. So the the key to AGI is the G. The, the generality is surprisingly elusive. And that's the amazing thing because that four-year-old that we were talking about uh, has generality in spades, even though uh, she's not necessarily a great chess player or a great go player. So that that's what we've we learned. As our AI technology evolves, we keep learning about what is the most uh, elusive aspect of AI. At first, you know, if you read some of the stuff that was written in the 60s and 70s, people were very skeptical that the program uh, could ever play chess because that was really seen as, a, you know, very intelligent people are very good uh, chess players. And then uh, that became solved. And uh, people talked about learning. They said, well, gosh, but programs can't, you know, can't learn. And as we've gotten better at at least certain kinds of learning, now uh, the emphasis is on, on generality, right? How do we build a general program given that all of our successes, whether it's poker or chess or certain ki kinds of question answering, have been on very narrow tasks. So uh, one sentence I read about Aristo says, the focus of the project is explained by the guiding philosophy that artificial intelligence is about having a mental model for how things operate and refining that mental model based on new knowledge. Can you break that down for us? And what do you mean? Well, um, I think, again, lots of things. But I think a key thing not to forget, and it goes from your favorite question about a nickel and the sun, is just so much of what we do makes use of, of background knowledge, just extensive knowledge of, of facts, of, of words, of, uh, of, of all kinds of social nuances, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the hottest thing going, right, is deep learning methods. Deep learning methods are responsible for the success in Go. But the thing to remember is that often, at least by any classical definition, those programs are very knowledge poor. If you could talk to them and ask them, what do you know? Uh, you'd find out that while they may have stored a lot of implicit information, say, about the game of Go, they don't know a whole heck of a lot. I like to say, uh, and that, of course, touches onto the topic of consciousness, which I understand is also uh, covered in your book. Uh, I ask AlphaGo, hey, did you know you won? 
AlphaGo can't answer that question. And it's not because it doesn't understand natural languages, it's not conscious. The Kasparov said that about Deep Blue, that he said, well, at least it can't gloat, you know, at least it, it doesn't know that it beat me. Um, uh, so, um, so do you, to that, to that point, so, you know, Claude Shannon wrote about uh, chess, you know, computers playing chess back in uh, the 50s. Um, but it was a lot of work, right? Like it was an enormous amount of work. It took the best minds to a long time to build something that could, that could beat Kasparov. Do you think that, that that is kind of a hump that you, 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 you that, that something like that is generalizable to a lot of other things? Or is it kind of like, well, yeah, we know how to play chess. The computers can play chess, but really uh, to your, uh, am I hearing you correctly that that is, that's not really a step towards anything general. That's uh, a whole different kind of thing. And, and therefore, Aristo is kind of doing something very different than AlphaGo or chess or Jeopardy. So I, I do think that we can generalize from, from, from that experience. But I, I think the generalization isn't always the, ones that, the one that people make. So what we can generalize is that when we have a very clear uh, what's called objective function or performance criteria, basically it's very clear uh, who won or who lost and we have a lot of data, uh, then as computer scientists, we're very, very good, and it's still, as you mentioned, you know, it took decades, but we're very, very good at continuing to chip away at that with faster computers, more data, more sophisticated algorithms, and uh, ultimately solving uh, the problem. Uh, however, in the case of uh, a natural language, if you and I, let's say, well, we are, we're having a conversation here on this podcast, who won that conversation? Let's say I want to do a better job if you ever invite me for another podcast. How do I do that? And if my method for getting better involves looking at literally millions of training examples, you're not going to do millions of podcasts, uh, right? So uh, you're right that a very different thing needs to happen when things are, are vaguer or more uncertain or more nuanced when there's less training data, et cetera, et cetera. All these characteristics to make Aristo and some of our other projects be very, very different than chess or Go. So where is Aristo? Like, what, what, give me a, like a question it can answer and a question it can't, or, or is that even a, a, a cogent question? Or like, where, where are you with it? Well, uh, so first of all, uh, you know, we, we keep track of our scores. So, uh, I can give you an example uh, in a second, but uh, when we look at uh, what we call non-diagram multiple choice, questions that are purely in, in language, because diagrams can be challenging for the machine to interpret, uh, we've been able to reach uh, very close to 80% uh, correctness, 80% uh, accuracy on non-diagram multiple choice uh, questions for fourth grade. When you uh, say any questions there, uh, we're at 60%, which is either great because when we started all these questions with diagrams and what's called direct answer questions where you know you have to answer it with a, a phrase or a sentence, you don't just get to choose between four choices, we were you know close to, to 20%, right? We were uh, far lower. So we've made a lot of progress. So that's on the you know glass half full side and the glass half empty side. Um, we're still you know getting a D right on on uh, on a fourth grade uh, science test. So it's all 
uh, a question of how you look at it. Now, when, when you ask um, uh, what questions can we solve, you know, we actually have uh, a demo on our website on alanai.org uh, that illustrates some of these. So if I go to the Arista project there and I click on, uh, on live demo, I see questions like, what is the main source of energy uh, for the water cycle? Or uh, even the diagram below shows a food chain. If the wheat plants died, the population of mice would likely blank, you know, dot, dot, dot. So, uh, you know, th these are fairly um, uh, complex questions, right? But they're not paragraph long. And the thing that we're still struggling with is what we call a brittleness, which is one of the frustrating things is if you take any one of these questions that we can't answer and then change the way you ask the question uh, a bit, all of a sudden we, we, we fail. So this is, by the way, a characteristic of many AI systems, this notion of brittleness where a small change that to a human might say, oh, that, that's no difference at all, can make a big difference to the machine. It's true. I, I just... Um I've been playing around with an Amazon Alexa and I noticed that if I say, how many countries are there? It gives me one number. If I say, how many countries are there in the world? It gives me a different number, even though a human sees that as the same question. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? That's exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about. And it's very frustrating. And by the way, Alexa and Siri, to people who want to kind of take the pulse of AI, right? I mean, again, uh, we're um, one of the largest nonprofit AI research institutes uh, in the world, but we're still pretty small at, uh, you know, 72 people. When you look at something like Alexa or Siri, right, uh, th that's for-profit companies. There are thousands of people uh, working on those, and it's still the case that you can't carry out, you know, carry on a halfway decent dialogue and, uh, with, with, with these programs. And I'm not talking about the cutesy answers about, you know, uh, Siri, you know, what are you doing tonight? Or, or are you better than Alexa? I'm talking about, let's say, the kind of dialogue you'd have with a concierge of, the, of a hotel to help you find, the, you know, uh, a good uh, uh, restaurant, to, you know, downtown. Uh, and again, it's because uh, how do you score dialogues, right? Who won the dialogue? All those questions that are very easy to solve in games are, are you know, not even really uh, well posed in the context of a dialogue. Yeah, I, I penned an article about how I have to whisper her name, otherwise it, it, it'll start talking to me. So how Alexa and, um, uh, and, and Google Assistant give you different answers to factual questions. So if you ask how many seconds are there in a year, they give you different answers. And if you say, who designed the American flag, they give you different answers. And, and when you run it down, um, like seconds in a year, you would think, well, that's an objective like that. There's a right and a wrong. But one gives you a calendar year, and one gives you a solar year, which is a quarter day different. And, uh, and with the American flag, if you think about it, one says Betsy Ross, and then one person, the other one says the person who designed the 50-star configuration of the flag, which was our current flag. And, and in the end, both of the time, those were the questioner's fault because the question itself is inherently vague, right? And so I guess even if the system's good, if the questions are poorly phrased, uh, you, you still, it still breaks, right? It's still brittle. Well, I, I would say that it's the computer's fault. In other words, 
again, an aspect of intelligence is being able to answer vague questions and being able to explain yourself, right? But these systems, even if their fact store uh, is enormous and, and one day it'll certainly exceed um, uh, ours, uh, in, you know, if all it can do is say, well, you know, you say, why did you give me a, 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 this number? Say, well, I found it here, right? Then really it's a, uh, you know, it's a big lookup table. Right, it's not able to um, uh, to deal right with the vagueness or to explain itself in a more meaningful way, or to what if you put the number three in that table? He asked, "How many seconds are there in a year?" The program would happily say three, and uh, you say, "Does that really make sense?" And it would say, "Oh, I can't answer that question." Right? Whereas a person, even if they had something in their head, they say, "Wait a minute." can't be three seconds in a year that just doesn't make sense right so we have right. such a long way to go well let, let's talk about that and then we've got three more projects to discuss but you're you're undoubtedly familiar with uh Searle's trainees room question and yes. I'll, I'll, I'll set it up just for the because what i'm what i'm going to ask you is is it possible for a computer to ever understand anything and, and so the setup very brief i mean i encourage people to, to look it up is that there's a person in a, in a room and he doesn't speak any Chinese and he's given Chinese questions and he's got all these books he can look it up in, but, but there's not any, you know, he, he just copies characters down and hands them back and he doesn't know if he's talking about cholera or coffee beans or what have you. And so the, the question is, and, and the analogy is obviously that's what a computer does. And so can a computer actually understand anything? Um, you know, the Chinese room uh, thought experiment is really one of the most uh, uh, tantalizing and, uh, and fun kind of uh, um, aspects or, or thought experiments in, uh, in philosophy of mind. And so many um, uh, articles have been written about it, arguing this, that, or the other thing. Uh, I, I would say that in short, uh, I think it does expose uh, some of the issues and, um, you know, the, the bottom line is when you kind of look under the hood at this Chinese room and the system there, you say, gosh, sure seems like it doesn't understand anything. And when you uh, take a computer apart, you say, gosh, uh, uh, how could it understand? It's just a bunch of, of, of circuits and wires and chips. Um, the only problem with that line of reasoning is it turns out that if you look under the hood in a person, uh, in a person's mind. In other words, you look at their brain, you see the same thing. You see neurons and, and ion potentials and, and chemical processes and, and neurotransmitters and hormones. And when you look at it at that level, uh, surely uh, neurons can't understand anything either. So uh, I, I think, again, without getting um, to a whole other podcast on the Chinese room, I think that it's a fascinating uh, thing to think about, but I think it's a little bit uh, misleading. Uh, understanding is, is something that emerges for a complex from a complex uh, technical system. That technical system could be built on top of neurons, or it could be built uh, on top of um, uh, on top of circuits and uh, and chips. It's an emergent phenomenon. Well, that also would be another one because I would then ask you: Is it is it strong emergence or is it weak emergence? But, but as I said, we're, we've got three more projects to discuss. So let's talk about Euclid. Sure. So, so Euclid is really a, a sibling of Aristo, and in Euclid, 
we're looking at SAT uh, math problems. And the Euclid problems are easier in the sense that you don't need all these uh, background um, uh, knowledge, uh, you know, to answer these uh, pure math questions. You certainly need uh, a lot less of that. Uh, however, you really need to very fully and comprehensively understand the sentence. So I'll give you my favorite example. Uh, this is a question that, you know, um, uh, you know, is, is based on a story about Ramanujan, the uh, uh, ancient uh, Indian uh, number theorist. Uh, he, he said, you know, what's the smallest number that's the sum of two cubes in two different ways? Uh, and the answer to that question is a particular number, uh, which again, the, the listeners can look up on, uh, on Google. But uh, to answer that correctly, you really have to fully parse that rather long and complicated sentence and understand the sum of two cubes in two different ways. What, what on earth does that mean? And so Euclid is working to have a full understanding of sentences and paragraphs, which are the kind of questions that we have on the SATs, Whereas often with Aristo and certainly, you know, with things like Watson and Jeopardy, you could get away with a much uh, more approximate understanding. Yeah, this question is sort of about this. Uh, there's no sort of when you're dealing with math questions and, the, and you have to give uh, the answer. And so that, that is, a, as you say, a sibling to Aristo. But Plato, the third one we're going to discuss, uh, is something very different, right? Right. So, so Plato is, uh, again, uh, maybe if we're using this family metaphor, uh, Plato is Aristo and Euclid's cousin. And what's going on there is we don't have a natural uh, benchmark test, but we're very, very interested in vision. We've realized that a lot of the questions that we want to address, a lot of the knowledge that uh, is present in the world isn't expressed in text certainly not in any convenient way. One great way to learn about the sizes of things, not just the sun and a nickel, but maybe even a, you know, a giraffe and a butterfly, uh, you're not gonna find a sentence that says a uh, giraffe is much bigger than a butterfly. But if you see pictures of them, uh, you can uh, make, make that connection. So Plato is about uh, extracting uh, knowledge from, uh, from images, from videos, from diagrams, and being able to reason over that uh, to draw conclusions. So um, uh, Ali Farhadi, who leads that project uh, and who shares his time between us and the Allen School at the University of Washington, uh, has done an amazing job generating result after result where we're able to do uh, remarkable things based on images. And my favorite example of this, and you kind of have to visualize it, just imagine drawing a diagonal line and then a ball on top of that line. What's gonna to happen to that ball? Uh, well, if you can visualize that, you'll see, well, of course, the ball's gonna roll down the line. It's gonna roll downhill. Turns out that most algorithms are actually uh, really challenged to make these kinds of predictions. Because to make that kind of prediction, you have to actually reason about what's going on. It's not just enough to say, there's a ball here in a line, but you have to understand that this is a slope and gravity is gonna come into play and predict what's going to happen. So uh, we really have um, some of the state-of-the-art capabilities in terms of reasoning over images and making predictions. And is, is video a different, you mentioned that, but isn't video a different, a whole different 
thing because you're really looking at the differences between images or is it the same basic technology? Well, again, at a, at a technical level, there are many differences, but actually the elegant thing about video, because as, as you intimated, right, a video is just a, uh, a sequence of, of images, right? It's really our, our eye that constructs the, or our mind that constructs the uh, continuous motion. All it is is, you know, a number of images shown, you know, per second. Uh, well, for, for us, it's the wonderful source of training data because I can take the image at second one and make a prediction about what's going to happen at second number two. And then I can look at what happened at second two and see whether the prediction was correct or not. Did the ball roll down the hill? Uh, you know, did the butterfly land on the giraffe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's a lot of commonalities and uh, video is actually a very rich source of, uh, of images and training data. You, you know, one of the one of the challenges I think with images is um, well, let me get an example. Let me discuss it. If I had, I live um, on a if I lived on a cul-de-sac, and let's say the couple across the street uh, were expecting, and uh, and the the woman is um, you know nine months pregnant, and one time I get up at three in the morning and I look out the window and the car is gone, I would say, ha, oh, they must have gone to the hospital. Um, in other words, I'm reasoning from what's not in the image. That, that would be really hard, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, you're, you're way ahead of Plato. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, again, uh, very, very true. Um, so I'm going to anticipate you go to Semantic Scholar. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we get to that. And with Semantic Scholar, uh, a number of the capabilities that we see in these other projects uh, come together and our core mission. So um, Semantic Scholar is a scientific search engine. It's available 24-7 uh, at semanticscholar.org. Uh, and it allows people to look for computer science papers, for neuroscience papers. Uh, soon we're going to be launching the ability uh, to cover all the papers in biomedicine, all the ones that are available on engines like uh, PubMed. And what we're trying to do there, though, is deal with the fact that there are um, so many, you know, over 100 million scientific research papers and more coming out every day. And uh, it's virtually impossible for anybody uh, to, to keep up. Our, our nickname for semantic scholars sometimes is, is Da Vinci, because we say, right, Da Vinci was the, the last Renaissance man, right, the person who kind of uh, knew all of science. There are no Renaissance men or women anymore because we just can't keep up. And, it, uh, and that's a great place for AI to help us to make uh, scientists uh, more efficient in their literature searches, more efficient in their abilities to uh, generate hypotheses and design experiments. And that's what we're trying to do with Semantic Scholar. And that involves understanding language and that involves understanding images and diagrams and, and involves a, a lot more. Why do you think the semantic web hasn't kind of taken off more? Why, and, and what is your prediction about the semantic web in the future? So I think that it's, it's important to distinguish between uh, semantics as we use it at Semantic Scholar and semantic in the, the semantic web. So in Semantic Scholar, we try to associate uh, semantic information with, uh, with text, for example, this paper is about a particular brain region 
or this paper uses fMRI methodology, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty simple semantic distinctions. The semantic web was a very rich notion of semantics that frankly is, uh, is superhuman and uh, is beyond, way, way, way beyond what we can do in a distributed world. So that vision uh, uh, by Tim Berners-Lee really evolved over the years into something called uh, linked open data, where, um, uh, again, the semantics is very simple, and the emphasis is much more about uh, different players on the web linking their, their data together. So uh, I think that very, very few people are working on the original notion of the semantic web because it's it's just way too hard. I'm, I'm just curious, this is a somewhat frivolous question, but the names of, of your projects don't seem to follow an overarching naming scheme. Is that because they, they, were, they were created and named elsewhere or, or, or what? Well, um, it's because, you know, if you let a computer scientist, which is me, if you put him or her in charge of branding, uh, you're going to run into, into problems. So uh, I think Aristo and Euclid are what we started with, and those were kind of you know, roughly analogous. Then we added Plato, which is an imperfect name, but still in, uh, you know, roughly in the mythological world. And then uh, Semantic Scholar uh, uh, really is a play off of Google Scholar. So, so Semantic Scholar is, if you will, really the... Uh, uh, the, the odd doc here. Uh, and when we had a project, we were considering doing work on dialogue, which we still are. We called that project uh, uh, Socrates. But then I'm also thinking, right, do, do we really want, uh, you know, all the, the projects to be named after men, uh, which is definitely not our intent. So I think the bottom line is uh, it's, it's, an imperfect, uh, it's an imperfect naming scheme uh, is, is what you're keying on to, and it's all my fault. So, the mission um, of, of the Allen Institute for AI is, quote, our mission is to contribute to humanity through high-impact AI research and engineering. Talk to me about the contribute to humanity part of that. What do, you, what do you envision? What do you hope comes of all of this? Sure. So, uh, I, I think that uh, when, when we started, we realized that so often AI is either vilified, right, particularly in, in Hollywood films, but also by folks like Stephen Hawking and, and Elon Musk. And we wanted to emphasize um, uh, AI for the common good, AI for, for, for humanity, where we saw some real uh, benefits to it. And also in a lot of for-profit comedies, uh, AI is used to you know, target advertising or to get you to buy more things, you know, in various ways to... Uh, violate your privacy, you know, if it's being used by uh, intelligence agencies or by uh, aggressive marketing. And, um, and we really wanted to find places like Semantic Scholar where AI can help uh, solve some of humanity's uh, thorniest problems, right, by helping scientists. And so uh, th th that's where it comes from. It's a contrast to... Um, to these other either more negative uses or more negative views of AI. And we've been really pleased that since we were founded, organizations like OpenAI or the Partnership on AI, which is uh, um, an industry consortium, uh, have, have adopted missions that, uh, that are very consistent and kind of echo ours, you know, uh, AI to benefit humanity and society. And 
uh, things like that. And so it seems like more and more of us in the field are really focused on uh, using AI for good. So you mentioned, you know, fear of, of AI and the fear manifests and you can kind of understand Hollywood. I mean, it's, it's drama, right? But the fear manifests in two kind of different ways. One is what you alluded to, that it's somehow bad, you know, at Terminator or what have you. But the other one that is on everybody's mind is, do you think, what do you think about AI's effect on employment and jobs? Um, I, I think that's a very serious concern. And so one of my uh, as you can tell, I'm not a big fan of the doomsday scenarios about AI. I, I, I tell people we should not confuse science with science fiction. But uh, another reason why we, we shouldn't concern ourselves with Skynet and doomsday scenarios is because we have a lot more realistic and pressing problems to worry about. And that, for example, is uh, AI's impact on, uh, on jobs. That's a very real concern. We'll see it in the transportation sector, uh, I predict, particularly uh, soon, where uh, you know truck drivers and Uber drivers uh, and so on are going to be gradually uh, squeezed out of the market. And that's a very significant uh, number of workers. And it's a challenge, of course, to help these people, to retrain them, to help them find uh, uh, other, other jobs in an increasingly you know, digital uh, economy. But, you know, the, the history of the United States, at least, over the past couple of hundred years, um, there have been a number of really disruptive technologies that have come along. Uh, I mean, you know, the electrification of industry, the mechanization of industry, the replacement of animal power, uh, going into steam. I mean, things that really impacted quickly. Isn't it a possible scenario, and, and unemployment never, never once budged because of that? Because what happens is people just use the new technology, and isn't it at least light? Isn't it at least possible that as we get more with as we as we move along with the development of artificial intelligence, that it actually is an empowering technology that lets people use it um, to increase their own productivity? Like anybody could use it to increase their productivity. So uh, I do think uh, that uh, AI will have that, that role. And I do think that, as you, as you intimated, right, these technological forces have some real positives, right? So the reason that we have, you know, phones and cars and washing machines and all these things that make our lives uh, better and that are, you know, broadly shared uh, through society and modern medicine and so on is because of, of technological advances. So I, I don't think of this as technological advances, including AI advances, is either A, negative, or B, avoidable, right? If we say, okay, we're not going to have AI, or we're not going to have computers, well, gosh, you know, other countries will, and they'll overtake us. Uh, it's, um, uh, I think that it's um, uh, very, very difficult, if not impossible, to stop broad-based technolo uh, technology change. Uh, uh, narrow technologies that are particularly uh, you know, um, terrible like uh, landmines or biological weapons, we've been able to uh, stop. But I think AI isn't stoppable because it's much broader and, it, and it's not something that should be stopped. It's not like that. So I very much agree with what you said, but with one key caveat. We survived those things and we emerged thriving, but the disruption over 
you know, uh, significant periods of time and for millions of people were very, very uh, difficult. So, right, as we went from a society that's whatever, you know, 90-something percent agricultural to one where there's only 2% workers in agriculture, people suffered and people were unemployed. And so I think that we do need to have the programs in place to help people with, with these transitions. And I don't think that they're simple because some people say, sure, uh, those old jobs went away, but look at all these great jobs, you know, uh, web developer and computer programmer and, uh, you know, uh, somebody who leverages these technologies to make themselves more effective at their jobs. That's true, but the reality is a lot more complicated. Are all these truck drivers really gonna become uh, web developers? Well, uh, well, I, I don't think that's, the argument, right? The argument is that everybody moves one small notch up. So somebody who was a math teacher in a college maybe becomes a web developer, and then a high school teacher becomes the college teacher, and then a substitute teacher gets the full-time job. And, then, and, and so it's, it's only one little – nobody says, oh, no, 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 we're going to take these people – you know, who, who have no, less training and we're going to put them in these highly technical jobs. That's, and, and that's not what happened in, in the past either, right? Like, everybody just has to do something. The question is, can everybody do a job a little more complicated than the one they have today? And if the answer to that is yes, then do we have a big disruption coming? Well, uh, first of all, I, you're, you're making a fair point, right? I was oversimplifying by mapping the uh, truck drivers to, to, to the uh, developers. But at the same time, uh, I, I think we need to remember that these changes are very disruptive. And so the easiest example to give, because it's uh, fresh in my mind, I think other people's minds, is let's look at the truck, right? So um, this is a technological change. It's more due to globalization into the shifting of, of manufacturing jobs out of the U.S. But nevertheless, these people didn't just uh, each, you know, take a little step up or a little step to the right, whatever you want to say. Uh, these people and their families uh, suffered tremendously, right? And, and, um, uh, and it's had very significant ramifications, including, uh, right, you know, Detroit going bankrupt, including um, – uh, many people losing their health care, including, you know, the, the, the vote for, for President Trump. So I think if you think on a 20-year timescale, uh, uh, you know, will, you know, the uh, negative changes be offset by uh, positive changes? Yes, uh, to, to a large extent. But if you think on shorter timescales and if you think about particular populations, I don't think we can just say, hey, you know, it's going to all be all right. I think we have a lot of work to do. Well, I, I, I'm with you there. And, and if, if there's anything that I think we can take comfort in is that uh, the country did that before. You know, there used to be a debate in, um, in the country about whether post-literacy education was worth it. Uh, this is back when we were in agricultural. And you could understand the logic, right? Like, well, once somebody learns to read, why do you need to keep them in school? And then people say, well, the jobs of the future are going to need a lot more skills. And so that's why the United States became the first country in the world to guarantee a high school education to every single person. And it sounds like you're saying something like that, where we need to, to make sure that our education opportunities stay in sync with the requirements of the jobs we're creating. 
absolutely. And then it's just a question of, I think we are agreeing that there's a, a tremendous potential for this to be positive. You know, some people, uh, again, have a doomsday scenario for jobs in society. And, and I agree with you 100%. I, I don't buy into that. Uh, and it sounds like we also agree, though, that there are things that we could do to make these transitions uh, smoother and easier on, on, on large segments of society. And it definitely has to do with uh, improving education and finding opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So I think uh, it's really a question of uh, how painful will this change be and how long will it take until we're at a new equilibrium that, by the way, could be a fantastic one. Because, you know, the interesting thing about the truck jobs and, you know, the the, the toll jobs that went away and the, you know, uh, a, a lot of other jobs are going away. Some of these jobs are awful, right? They're terrible, right? People aren't excited about a lot of these jobs. They, they do them because they don't have something better. If we can offer them something better, then the world will be a better place. Absolutely. So we, we've, we've talked about AGI, like just I've referenced it. You, do you think, I assume you think we can, that we'll eventually build a general intelligence? Uh, I, I, I do think so. I, I would be, you know, I don't know if it'll take, I think it'll easily take more than 25 years, could take as long as a thousand years, but I'm what's called a, a materialist, which means, doesn't mean that I like to shop on Amazon. It means that I believe that, you know, when you get down to it, we're, we're constructed out of atoms and molecules, and there's nothing <clears throat> magical about intelligence. And so, oh, sorry, there's something tremendously magical about it, but there's nothing ineffable about it. And so uh, I think that ultimately we will build uh, computer programs that uh, can do uh, and exceed what we can do. So by extension, um, you believe that we'll build conscious machines as well? Um, yes, I, I don't think, uh, I think, again, you know, consciousness uh, emerges from it. I don't think there's anything uniquely uh, human or biological about consciousness. And the, the, the range of time that people think it will be before we create an AGI, in my personal conversations range five to 500 years. Uh, where in that spectrum would you, would you cast your ballot? Well, I, I would give uh, uh, anyone uh, a thousand to one odds that it won't happen in the next five years. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll bet $10 against $10,000 uh, because um, uh, I'm in the trenches, right, working on these problems right now. And we are just so, so far uh, from, from uh, anything remotely resembling uh, an AGI. And, and uh, I don't know anybody in the field uh, who, who, who would, would say or think uh, uh, otherwise, I know there's some, you know, so-called futurists uh, or what have you, but uh, people actively working on AI uh, d don't don't see that. And furthermore, even if somebody says some random thing, then I would ask them back them back it up with data. What what's your basis for saying that? Look at our uh, progress rates on uh, specific benchmarks and challenges. They're very promising, but they're very promising for very narrow tasks like object detection or speech recognition. What about uh, language understanding, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you go beyond 10, 20, 30 years, who can predict what will happen? So I'm very comfortable saying it won't happen in the next uh, 25 years. 
And I think that it's extremely difficult to predict beyond that, whether it's 50 or 100 or more, I couldn't tell you. So do you think we have all the parts we need to build an AGI? Like, could you, are we, are we on a path or is it going to take some, some breakthrough we can't even fathom right now? Or, you know, with enough deep learning and faster processors and better algorithms and more data and, you know, could you, could you say we are on a path to it now? Or is your sole reason for believing we're going to build an AGI is, is your um, materialist, your, you know, if we're, we're made of atoms, we can build something made of atoms. I think it's going to require multiple breakthroughs that are, we, it's very difficult to imagine uh, today. And let's just give, let me give you a, a pretty concrete example of that. Um, we, we want to take the information that's in text and images and videos and all that and represent that internally using a representation language that captures the meaning, the gist of it. You know, uh, a listener to this podcast uh, has kind of a gist of what we've talked about. Um, we don't even know what that language looks like. We have various representation languages. None of them are equal to the task. Let me give you another way to think about it. It's a thought experiment. Let's suppose I was able to give you a computer, a computer that was as fast as I wanted, with as much memory as I wanted. Uh, would that, using that unbelievable computer, would I now be able to construct uh, a, a, an artificial intelligence that's human level? The answer is no. Uh, and it's not about me. None of us can. So if it was really... Uh, about uh, just uh, the speed and so on, then I'd be a lot more optimistic about doing it in the short term because we're so good at, uh, you know, making it run two times faster, making it run 10 times faster, building a faster computer, storing uh, information. We used to store it, you know, in floppy disk, and now we store it here. Next, we're going to be storing it in DNA. This exponential march of technology and a Moore's law keep getting faster and cheaper uh, in that sense is uh, phenomenal. But that's not enough to achieve AGI. Final question. Um, I, 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 you, earlier you said people, you tell people don't get confused with science and science fiction. But about science fiction, is there anything that you've seen, read, watched, or, or what, that you actually think is a realistic scenario of what we may be able to do, what the future may hold? Is there anything that you look at and say, well, you know, it's fiction, but it's possible? You know, uh, one of my favorite uh, pieces of fiction is, is, uh, is, is the book Snow Crash, uh, where uh, it kind of sketches this uh, future of Facebook and future of our society and, and so on. I, I, if I were to recommend one book, uh, it, would be, it would be that. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, books um, about uh, AI uh, are, you know, long on science fiction and short on what you call uh, hard science fiction, short on, on, uh, on, on reality. And, and if we're talking about science fiction, I, I'd love to end with a note where, you know, there's this famous uh, Arthur C. Clarke saying that a sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I think to a lot of people, AI seems like magic, right? We can beat the world champion and go. And uh, my message to people, again, as somebody who works in the field, 
day in and day out. Uh, it's uh, it couldn't be further uh, from uh, from magic. It's uh, blood, sweat, and tears. And by the way, human blood, sweat, and tears of really talented uh, people to achieve the limited successes that we've had in AI. And AlphaGo, by the way, is the ultimate illustration of that because it's not that AlphaGo defeated Lisa Dull or the machine defeated the human. It's this remarkably talented team of engineers and scientists at Google, working at Google DeepMind, working for years. They're the ones who defeated Lisa Dull with some help from technology. All right, well, that's a great uh, place to leave it. Um, and I want to thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Uh, it's a real pleasure for me, and uh, I look forward both to listening to this podcast, to your other ones, and to reading your book. Oh, thank you. I would like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Argo Design. Argo is a product design consultancy, a growth partner to entrepreneurs, and an incubator of new experiences. Argo works with clients who share one common trait, the drive to create something innovative and valuable. Schedule a consultation or studio visit at Argo. Just email info at argodesign.com.